Hello, and welcome to Courage to Be, a podcast on becoming. This is episode number eight, and today we're going to spend some time talking about the ego as an illusion. Uh, this is a fun topic and somewhat complicated, but we'll give it our best shot. Um, I'm joined, as always, by uh, Dr. Steve Byers. How are you doing today, Steve? I'm doing good. We're, we're in the last leg of our semester. Can't wait for summer. Nothing against students or higher ed, but yeah, tired. But I'm here. I'm good. Energized. It has been a crazy couple of weeks. We are behind. You may have noticed, those of you who listen, that there's been a, a gap in our podcasts. Uh, it's because of how busy our schedules have been. We try to do this weekly. Sometimes we're more successful than others. Um, also, this is kind of funny. Um, I've gotten some comments about the bleeping on the last couple podcast episodes, and I felt like I should probably talk about that. Um, so the story behind that is, is that I have a, a friend of mine, one of my best friends. I play in a band with him. His name's Austin. Um, he does our editing for us. Is a wonderful donation of his time. We're all donating time on this at this point. Um, and he likes to give me um, a hard time about how much I curse. And so it's it's a it's an inside joke. Um, I sometimes wonder if he would bleep me in real life if he had the opportunity to do so. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I I don't know. I've a couple people have said it's distracting. We may it may be here, it may not. I'm not sure what we're gonna do. Um, if you do though, I think this is a fun thought experiment. Just imagine the worst possible word I could say in that space. <laughs> when Chris told me that, I thought you know usually I'm the one that. It's bleeped. So something, something switched out, some sort of psychic osmosis or something. Sure. <laughs> so anyway, that's that's the answer to the question I've gotten from a couple people of what's with the bleeping in the last couple episodes. So today we're going to spend some time, like I said, talking about the ego and ego being the self is, you know, me, myself, I, that that identification is ego, not like you have such a strong ego, you're so egotistical. Right. Not like that, but just the ego as the self, as an independent self. So that's what we're going to spend some time talking about today. Um, before we dive into that, though, I do want to hit on again these concepts that are so foundational to what we've been talking about over the past few episodes with Buddhism of interdependence and non-permanence, um, because those concepts are critical to uh, understanding the self in this way. And this way of understanding the self is very non-Western. It's very different than the kind of Americanized idea of the self. Um, it's really powerful. It's really helpful. Um, it's also confusing for a lot of people, and it's taken me some time to, to get the understanding that I do have, and I know there's a lot that I don't understand. Um, but, you know, we have this idea of dependent origination. There's also an idea of interdependent co-arising, um, and that interdependent co-arising piece, I think, is going to be pretty pivotal to understanding this, which is basically as one thing changes, something else changes in response. And so as this increases, that increases, as this ceases, that ceases. And that interdependent nature um, of experience uh, is, is pretty important to understanding what we're going to try to talk about today. The thing that gets me is we have the East and the West. And in the West, we really do rely on and have an experience of an independent self. And, you know, my first graduate degree was in personality psychology, which means assessing this thing called the self, uh, trying to understand what makes you an individual and me an individual and measuring it through assessment tools and actually seeing if it predicts any kind of behavior. So, you know, coming from that academic tradition where we assume it's there and we can measure it and assess it, and there have been some, some successes there in recent in recent decades. Uh, it it came as a revelation 
to read the doctrine of that the self is an illusion, that ego is an illusion. And we'll use those semi-interchangeable today, but it really is a different, uh, a different run at what we are and how we exist. I used to think they were antithetical. And recently, through doing this uh, work with Chris and doing study, I think they're a lot complementary. But I do think folks from the West get this kind of, I know I did this kind of, uh, what do you mean I don't exist? And that that's <laughs> not really what, what we're after. And I would say that the idea of no self um, in Buddhism can lead to uh, some humility and hopefully some... Uh, deconstruction of self-importance. And that's what we're always about, trying to make human relations better and our world a little bit better. So and we'll get into that. Yeah. And there are so many interconnected uh, concepts here. We talk about dependent origination, um, interdependent co-arising as concepts. We could do an entire podcast on those concepts, and we probably will at some point. There's a concept of the the five aggregates or the five skandhas, which we're, we're talking about doing a podcast on, which is tied into the, the self um, as well. Um, we probably won't get into that today. There's just a whole lot that we could get into, and we'll we'll kind of unpack this as we go. Yeah. So um, I had thought of this uh, talk entitling it "Illusion of the Self" because Buddhism th- that's really what it's saying in essence, or that's my that's my reading and interpretation of it. That this idea that you exist, and this gets back to what Chris is talking about these different ideas and concepts. But um, the idea and the uh, sense that you are independent, that ego is of its own accord, of its own agency, its own behavior, is, from the Buddhist perspective, mistaken in the sense that to be a self, and this gets into what it means to be in an illusion, to be a self, to have a sense of ego identity, you're not independent. And... uh, when you think of looking out at a car, this is used a lot in Buddhist teachings. When you look at a car and you say, oh, there's a car, you know, it's got doors, handles, it starts, you know, or maybe it self-drives. So your idea and concept of car is that it's a, a whole holistic entity, there it sits. But if you break it down to what its essence is, Is it its tires? Is it the engine? You need all of these constituent parts to to, interact to create this concept and this utility of a car. And so it's it's pretty much the same argument with with self in Buddhism. Uh, I mean, I know who I am, quote unquote, but at the same time, and I, I need to know who I am if I woke up tomorrow and had no sense of continuity. And this gets into personality psychology and assessment. I, I mean, I know who I am day to day. If I bump into something, I go, ouch. But when I really stop to look at it, that sense of what I am, that sense of ego, is dependent upon my family, my language, my culture, my neurology, my genetics. And so kind of like the tires, the transmission, the ignition switch, there are constituent parts to me that that make up this holistic sense of who I am. And there's some kind of fun thought experiments you can do with that. So if, if I think about, you know, what makes me me, that idea, you know, what is it about me that makes me who I am, right? 
Um, is it, you know, my job? Is it what I do? Is it, you know, the roles that I occupy? Is it my physical body? Is it, is it my personality? Is it my memory? Is it my brain? I mean, what is it? And if there is a thing that makes you you, then if that thing was gone, you would stop being you, right? Um, if there was a concrete thing that this is me, you know, is it is it my mind? Well, if I have a traumatic brain injury, my the way my mind works changes. Does that mean that I'm no longer me? No, I'm still me. I'm just different, right? Uh, if you have dementia, you don't stop being you, even though you can't remember potentially who you were. Um, so just like with the car, if you take a portion of that car away, um, if you take the tires off the car, it doesn't stop being a car. It's still a car. It's just a car without tires. Right. And so there's all these interconnected pieces that make us us. Um, and that means that there is no independent particular thing that makes me me. Instead, there's all these things that together create a state that I identify as a self. But in reality, it's a, it's a combination of a lot of causes and conditions that, that arise together in response to something else that manifests to create the self that I am in that given moment. And so like, you know, whenever an example that I talk about with clients is, you know, you do something and you're like, well, that wasn't me that I was, I was really, I was really distraught and, and I did that, but that wasn't me. This is me. That was, you know, it's like, no, that is actually you. That is you when you were distraught. That was the self that existed in that moment. And you were now in a different moment and you're responding diff to different things. Um, the self that I am in this moment recording this podcast with Steve is different than the self that I was before because I am responding to the causes and conditions that are arising that create this moment. And I am responding to this moment in, in relation to Steve, as we have this conversation, you know, this is different than it might be when I am talking to somebody else, not being that I'm fake or anything. It's just that I am responding to what is occurring in this moment. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, <clears throat> we like to, uh, intersperse Western psychology with some of these, uh, Eastern teachings. And so let me, let me do a little bit of that. Uh, I remember in grad school, uh, training with a couple of really, really good personologists and social psychologists and, uh, Hazel Marcus, uh, she developed this notion of possible selves. And what she found was, and, and this is, it's a proven fact that when we grow and develop, uh, during adolescence, we start trying on these different selves. Let's think of a middle schooler or even a high schooler. And we're not aware of it. Uh, but once, once you kind of talk about it and get folks, uh, young people to process it, I have an athletic self. You know, maybe I'm trying out for sports, going to play soccer. I have an academic self. I have a family role self. I remember reading all that and thinking, well, what's the true core self, right? Mm -hmm. And so each of those selves and, and these and young people and adults do it too. Here I am as the tenured psychologist or, you know, whatever. Or here I am as a proficient Buddhist or martial artist. And, and we spend time embellishing those, thinking about those, which to me led to the question of, wow, which one of these is the core self? Well, the answer is none of them. And I think that points to the psychological, social, cultural, uh, and it hits on the idea that things are not permanent. If I move away to a farming community and they don't have a really good soccer program and I'm a 16-year-old soccer head, I go through grief and loss because I can't really 
enact that self. In time, that, that rehearsal, that becoming that self will have to go into something else, maybe another sport. And so it gets into the malleability and the emptiness of uh, the idea of the emptiness of the permanent self, of the ever-abiding self. Yeah, and, and we talk about psychology. I mean, even Carl Jung talked about these kind of concepts in terms of ego and personas and all these masks that we wear, right? Um, I mean, this has been around for a very long time. And I think that, you know, from a Western mindset, we can conceptually understand it, but there's a difference between conceptually understanding it and living the experience. Uh-huh. And, and it's an important distinction. You know, we can understand it in our heads, but not get it in our hearts, so to say. How does that manifest? And what it is, is it's through that attachment. It's through clinging. We, we are mistaken. We talk about, you know, the three poisons, for example, with the, you know, desire, aversion, and ignorance. If we're ignorant to the fact that we are becoming attached and clinging to these definitions of self as the self that we are, and then, then we hold on to them as being permanent. And we don't realize we're ignorant, meaning not knowing, not aware of the impermanent nature of the self and identifying as this self. So if I think of myself as an educator, right, this is Chris Carver, the educator, and that is who I am. So then I'm holding on to that that manifestation of self as, a, as an independent, steady self and is permanent. And that's something that is what I'm maybe doing at this moment. That is not what I'm doing in, in other moments. And by holding on to that attachment of that definition, which is how I create the self, that causes me suffering because I'm clinging on to something. And when it changes or when things modify or when I need to do something different, need to be adaptive, need to be responding to situations, whatever, um, then then that causes distress because I feel, you know, because I'm coming up against my ignorance, so to say. Um, and that's true in any definition, whether that's you think about with your children. If you're a parent, you're you're parenting a young child. That child is going to grow up and change and not need you in the same ways. If you cling to the role of parent and if you define yourself as parent in response to these children, then um, then when that change occurs, it's very distressing. It creates suffering for you. Right. And so it's that's where like the lived experience is different than the conceptual understanding. Um, I've heard it also described as, you know, self is noun versus adjective, right? We we tend to take things that are descriptors and hold on to them as if they are who we are, you know, and, and if we can have it be how I am, not who I am, it tends to cause less distress, less suffering. Yeah. And, and you know, that clinging and attachment leads to uh, almost automatically, I would say, either internal suffering or it can lead to possessiveness. I need you to love me or I love you, or I hate you. And so one drop drop back here is if I'm not permanent, if I am made up of constituent parts, I probably shouldn't cling so much to this or that because it's going to change. So I think, you know, something in, in what you said, Chris, sparked that I, uh, the notion of how that idea that we stand separate from other things and we're not interdependent is a problem in the sense that, A, that's not true from these doctrines, but also if I am connected to others, shouldn't I have them as as a part of concern, as a part of how I act and behave? Uh, There are teachings in Buddhism that says, you know, when you think about suffering, you look at your suffering and maybe you're kicking your can down the road or maybe you're upset about it, but step back and look at all the suffering in the world. 
And if you were to stack all the suffering in the world, and even that's going to happen in the future, that stack of suffering would make yours look very, very, very small. And like everyone in that stack that has suffered and will suffer, you suffer too. So there's a hopefully a sense of interconnectivity that can come out of you know deconstructing the idea that we stand alone and that we're independent. And certainly our cultures get in here and, and condition us and such. But um, my mentor in Denver always said, you know, would Mozart have been a great uh, composer and, and a great musician? No, not if he was born in Africa in 910 AD. There were no pianos. There was no strict parenting uh, like his father was strict with him. There was no way to write down sheet music. Now, he might have had an innate capacity to be a really good chanter, drummer, or, you know, whatever. But th- those conditions that create this idea, this static notion of Mozart to himself and others, without the right conditions, the right ingredients, it never would have happened. And so that's, uh, I always remember that as a, uh, uh, a teaching on just how dependent we are for our sense of identity and ego on uh, conditions and the co-arising of them, the culture, the family, the musical instruments in that culture. If those weren't there, no Mozart. Well, and you know, we, ch- we individually change over time as well from moment to moment but you know we it's gradual and so instinctive we don't pay attention but if i think about who i am now at 39 as an associate professor as this podcast host as a musician as a father as all these things right that's very different than i would have been at 18 i think about who i was at 18 and what was important to me and what i thought was going to occur and how i define the self it, it, I am a different person, you know, like it, it's almost unrecognizable in some ways. Right. But yet I am still me, which means that the idea that there is a permanent self, that there is a I um, is a loser, is illusory even there. Well, you, now you remind me of just how uh, in, in elementary school, I, we don't have those distinctions uh, headed toward middle school. I really got into playing baseball. I mean, it was my life. And I look, I uh, would practice, uh, get, get, you know, neighbors together, family members, we'd play baseball on the weekends. And somewhere along the lines, other things got my interest. And I, that, that self at, uh, in middle school is, <laughs> it just doesn't exist. So things change and evolve. So maybe, just maybe, we should be a little bit more open and maybe a little less clingy to what's going on right now so we don't wind up fighting for it and having to have it a certain way. At least that's the idea behind this to create a, a little bit better humanity. There's some other fun thought experiments that can be done with this. Um, a lot of times I think we tend to identify with our emotions. Something occurs and I feel anger. And I say, I am angry. You notice the distinction between I feel anger and I am angry. Mm -hmm. We kind of dive into that and we become reactive. Mm -hmm. But if instead we shift to I feel anger, then there's something that is noticing the anger, which means you are not angry. You are feeling anger and there is a part of you that is noticing the anger. And so it's almost like there's two different pieces there. And there, and what does the part of you that is noticing the anger experience? Yeah, and yeah. that can then give you some objectivity and help you become less reactive. We, we had a class this morning on Buddhism 101, and one of the uh, participants made the, made the point that, you know, between stimulus and response, there's agency. And I thought to myself, well said, and only if you uh, <laughs> humble the self to know that you don't matter in the ways 
that you sometimes in an attached hedonistic way matter, oh, I'll pause and take a look at this better, you know, get get a better view of it to practice a little bit more humility. Uh, Maybe take a space and not react, see what comes up. It's a powerful thing. And, And that's kind of the so what of this illusion of the self topic is it's like, okay, so if I if I had the idea that I am permanent, I am me and you are you and we are separate and I am permanently me and you are permanently you, then that creates suffering and distress. And whenever we experience change, which is inevitable, we fight it because I am me and this is how I am. And now I have to be something different. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't jive with how I understand things. But instead, if we understand it as in any given moment, we are constantly in response, responding to events, to change causes and conditions, things that occur, and we are being re- responsive to those things, and 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 we have agency in how we choose to respond to those things. And if we choose to respond to those things in a way that feeds well-being, you know, going back to that eightfold path conversation from other podcasts then we can create a self that is very different than the self that would be if we fed the seeds of, of Ill, Ill being, right? And so we can engage actively in, in our life in responsiveness and, um, and kind of create something that, that creates a better experience and better world for the people around us in addition to ourselves. And then when we see people reacting in ways that are harmful or hurtful, or we don't understand, we can also see that that person in that moment is temporary. That is not who they are. That is how they're being in that instance, in that moment, in response to causes and conditions that we may not understand. And that allows space for compassion and for empathy and for for kindness and love and things like that, um, that is sometimes harder to access if I am me and you are you and how are you doing this thing to me. You know, the space keeps coming up in our talk, and I think it really is a matter of creating that space where there can be, you know, choice, agency, and uh, hopefully injecting with a little bit more humanity, because what I do affects you and what you do affects me. Now, Shogyam Trumpa Rinpoche, a renowned Tibetan teacher, somewhat controversial um, in his biography and studies of his life, but his teachings, uh, he teaches that we interact with matter. Of course, now we know from the hard sciences that, that that's kind of the way they, they're starting to construe things. But he says, you know, if I take a rock and throw it at you and it hits you and knocks you down, matter has interacted with you. <laughs> it's not that you're <laughs> independent of it, right? And he said, so let's say you pause and you're well-grounded in knowing that that pain from the rock hit you is impermanent, and you pick up the rock and you wonder why you threw the rock at me. And uh, now you're interacting with matter. Do you choose to throw the rock back? Do you choose to ask? Do you choose to distance? And so there's that space. I know it's kind of a stark example, and he doesn't take it that far, but it's true. I mean, we do interact with everything. We're in ecology. Sam Harris talks about how you're not the core of your experience as a self. You're selfing your experience. You're taking you know, your identity and you're applying it and you're in, in a dance and an orchestrated uh, set of relations and interactions with things. So, again, that, that, um, that egotistical stance can lead to harm and damage if we shift it out to understand that, you know, we leave a carbon footprint, uh, we relate to others, and there's reciprocity, symbiosis in some cases when, when, we have a, when we're, you know, pairing our kids and they're developing their sense of identity through touch and connection in infancy. Uh, it, it's, 
you're you're making um, an, you're having an influence of making an imprint, and there's reciprocity there automatically. And I know everyone doesn't see it that way, but automatically, this idea that things are impermanent, there is no inherent core self, creates a more of a you know more of a nice image of that interplay versus me lording over things, manifest destiny. You know, I control this. This is my house, and all those things that are. In a, to a large extent, in my thinking, cultural baggage. I'm just curious, because um, you come from a, a couple different traditions. So how do these concepts play out in some of your other experiences? I think uh, growing up here in Oklahoma with uh, traditional Indian folks till we moved to the city uh, for jobs, and I think I've talked about this before, but I grew up with a sense of that ecology as being really, really important. I didn't grow up with a sense of... Uh, ego identity, so to speak. And so uh, every once in a while, I have to stop from all the things that I do as, as being, you know, being a professor or being a professional. And I got to go get my forest fix. I got to be out in the woods. Uh, and I also need to go back to people who are from a collectivist background. And that's not a, you know, a kick at anybody's culture, but, and it does, and it transcends culture. Every group that I've ever encountered with you know, people that see themselves as a part of the whole in a collectivist vein, uh, I tend to uh, get, since my primary formations were that in Indian community, where the clan, the the family, uh, to a certain extent, you grieve when the land is is destroyed. There, there's some fantastic stories, uh, as grievous as they are, of people's dreams being disrupted because they were drilling for oil here in uh, Oklahoma. And so the people who were really connected to the land began to feel that in their dreams because of their connection to the ecology and the collective, the clan. Uh, years ago, I had an African student under supervision, and we found her uh, every morning. She'd go into one of the little side closets, and we thought that maybe she was having some hallucinations or psychosis because she was talking to someone and praying to someone. Now, you couldn't distinguish that, so it sounded like she was having conversations with folks. So they brought her in, we talked to her, and she began to cry. And she goes, I, no, I'm not psychotic, a lesson in cultural proficiency here. Uh, she said, I am talking and praying to my ancestors who are here with me in every session that I do with a client. She was studying for LPC. And, you know, she had grown up and immigrated here, but she said, I get ill if I don't talk to them and pray directly to them. And she told the group that had uh, was concerned about her, but had missed, uh, missed it culturally. She said, you know, this is, uh, this is who I am. They're here with me. And so I don't know if that's what you were uh, uh, asking me about, but I think that um, there are collectivist traditions, and maybe this is cultural ethnocentrism. I don't think so, but that may mean I am culturally ethnocentric. Uh, I think that's a better way to be, to step and walk with a notion of relating and caring others with you. Whenever I teach the diagnostics class, I spend a lot of time, especially at the beginning of the class, before we start going into all the different diagnoses, talking about the entire concept of diagnosis, that the DSM is a cultural document. Oh, agree. It is what dominant culture says is normal and abnormal. And people from different cultures may manifest differently that we may see as abnormal through our cultural lens. That doesn't mean that it's actually abnormal. And we need to be mindful of that when we're putting labels on people, because the labels of a diagnosis have significant implications in terms of how they're 
treated in the medical system and the ways that they talk about themselves. And there was a great article in the Times years ago. I think it might have been when I was in my, my master's program. So this would have been before 2010. It talked about how the understanding of eating disorders um, in Eastern cultures changed with the advent of the DSM system in terms of how it manifested and presented in the population. Like as the understanding from the DSM 4 TR, I think, which is what was current at the time, became more known over there, like the way that symptoms were described by, by patients, by clients, and the ways that it manifested in terms of how it actually showed up changed. Um, as a Western idea got kind of laid over the top of an Eastern understanding of things and became medicalized. Um, and so these things are cultural diagnoses, pathologies, uh, mental illness, all these things have a cultural component. Yeah. I, I just did a seminar, um, where we talked about historical trauma in Native Americans and African Americans. And I, I talked about cases where folks by our diagnostic system were clinically depressed, but they just didn't get better. And these were Indian folks. And the researcher took these folks, well, she did a, a study where she took people and gave them the standard treatments, you know, medication and a, a version of therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy. She had the one sample that did the CBT and maybe some meds. And then another group that they went to a healing ceremony where they went back to a wounded knee and they recreated, they actually marched and walked there. And then when they got there, they had ceremony, they had song, dance, uh, uh, drumming, and they released their trauma, which they had never been able to do as a collective. Then, then they did the CBT and they got better quicker, stayed better longer. So I tell that story because, yeah, it's a call every. You know, most everything is in this cultural caste, and we just have to be careful with this individualism because it's not the norm in other societies and cultures. I mean, we've talked a little bit about theoretical orientation. Now we're getting into like if you – I don't want to get into so far in the weeds that we're like talking to other therapists exclusively. Um, but but I actually subscribe to the idea of the common factors movement and approach, that understanding of things, which basically, you know, as a, as a field, we like to say, this is the newest, greatest thing, and this is better than that other thing that you're doing, so you should do what I'm doing. Um, and we argue about, well, is this theoretic, the theoretical <laughs> therapeutic approach better than the other one? And we do studies on this stuff. And one of the ways we measure the, the, the significance of the study is by a measure called an effect size. And um, Steve would do a better job of explaining effect size than I would. That's, that's not the point I'm making. But the common factors research was meta-analysis. So they did studies combining the effects of multiple studies to see across multiple studies what was true, what factors showed up as being true across things. And what they found is that there are um, kind of trans-theoretical things that show up as uh, being attributed to, to positive client change. And one of the hallmark studies of that was by Lambert in 1992. Um, and I, that's just because I remember the stats off the top of my head. But what they found basically is that 40% of client change was attributable to extra therapeutic factors. So things that have nothing to do with us as therapists. It's the client and the client's world. So that's the largest portion. 15% is theory. But that's not that a particular theory like CBT or person-centered or dialectical behavior therapy or whatever. It's that the therapist actually has a theoretical orientation that they're following. They have a conceptual map that makes sense to understand the client's concern. So you have to have that narrative framework as the therapist, and that attributes about 15%. Um, there's another 15% that is kind of like the, the unexplainable 
catch-all junk drawer things. And, and there are people that are more versed in the research that won't give me nasty emails for putting it that way, I'm sure, um, if they ever listen to the podcast. Um, but the portion that as a therapist, we have the largest um, ability to impact is the therapeutic relationship. It's about that connection. It's about being able to connect with another human being in a way that is therapeutic. Um, and having a theory, having an understanding is absolutely a part of that. Um, but so I kind of give people a hard time about CBT and, and these other things, but I really think it matters is that you have something and, and all that, but, um, it's that connection piece. We are interconnected. We respond in response to others. Well, I was going to say the, the studies on the historical trauma and releasing it, uh, the point, and it's been replicated. The point of the story is there is the identity treating things in an individual fashion, um, you know, wasn't working with a collectivist group of people. But when you bring in the past, present uh, in a way that you can heal uh, as, a, as a whole community and spirits also, uh, that was where the true healing took place. So the identity and the individual almost didn't matter uh, to that group. Well, it didn't because the only thing that helped them was to grieve the loss of their their loved ones in the past. Yeah, we've kind of gotten all off on tangents. But to, to bring it back again, um, all of this is to just kind of, again, discuss the interdependent and impermanent nature of the self and how holding on and, and clinging to to the idea that there is a me that is me and there is a you that is you and that is independent um, and non-changing um, causes us suffering and pain. Um, and, and it's important to really kind of have a felt sense experience of um, I am changing, I am in response to these things and and that I'm okay. I don't have to be this thing all the time. Well, and I, I would close with, you know, we're always accommodating, adjusting to get through our day, to get through our cell, to, to get through life. And so the self, it's it's okay if we change and it's okay if we're empty of permanence because it's true. I mean, as some of the examples indicated, and to be authentic is to give yourself more space and time and acceptance that you are going to change because you kind of have to. You run into a new situation, you have to learn you know, different different skills, different things. Uh, Noah Rochetta, in um, his uh, one of his books, he talks about uh, in in flight school and learning how to you know control the the a helicopter. You have to be in constant motion and, and accommodating and modifying, so the self becomes a part of this almost cybernetic system. And he said, but that's really the way it is with a whole lot of things, right? We take the self and identity and we plop it into situations. We have to watch this. We have to do that. Sports is a great example of that, right? Team sports. You got to pay attention to, you know, the forward, you know, and and then you got to kick the ball and then modify here. And he said, really, when you look at it. This idea of a fixed static self is is false because we're always in motion. We're always uh, in orchestration with our environments and context. Well, um, is there anything else we need to talk about? I know we're going to talk about the five skandhas in another episode. Oh, we we have to now, yeah. Because ego is dependent upon, well, it isn't dependent upon, but ego constructs these uh, different uh, aggregates or heaps uh, that go into the five skandhas. So they're inter- they are interdependent. You know, that... The the five skandhas are talked about uh, in a lot of things, but the one that I was first exposed to them in was was in the Heart Sutra, which Steve and I have referenced a few times. Um, and and you know that's something that I think if you're exposed to Buddhism, I think you're probably going to be exposed to pretty quickly. Um, and we could even have a podcast or multiple 
on that. Um, so just kind of future plans. We do want to talk about the five skandhas. We do want to kind of branch out into some other things. Um, I know that we're getting ready to record an episode here pretty soon that the focus is on religious trauma and we're going to have a guest on for that one. So that should be fun. Our first guest episode. Um, yeah. And, but I think, you know, we're talking about a lot of the ways that, um, you know, spirituality and, and understanding things from this lens can can help us in terms of our mental health process and journey. Um, there are also parts of it that can hinder us. And I think that it's it's good to explore those and kind of talk about potential ways through that. And so we've, we've got some plans. You know, we also are doing this on our schedule. This is a donation of our time is, is you know, to do this. It's a donation of Austin's time to do the editing. So we appreciate you um you listening we hope this is helpful to you yeah and 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 spread the word tell other people about it if it helps you that's my my rule of thumb if you get something out of this Mm -hmm. uh think about letting other people know about it because that is why we're here all right you'll have a great week elevate everybody elevate Mm -hmm.